All right, let's go ahead and get started here this morning. We've got a few more questions that have been dropped in the box. Uh, maybe that was last week or this morning. And next week, we're going to start unfolding some of those. There, there are some heavy questions that were added even just since last week. And so uh, if you have questions, keep putting them in there. We might not be able to exhaustively consider all the nuances of the answer to your question, but hopefully we can at least get those conversations started and realize that there really is hope uh, in finding the wisdom we need uh, as we dig into the Word. Speaking of the Word, your assignment was to bring a Bible passage that speaks of parenting because we asked the question, how does the Bible reveal the concept of parenting? And we began by looking at Genesis and seeing first in Genesis 1, in that great command benediction, that blessing slash imperative, uh, be fruitful and multiply, which gave us a hint that somehow uh, God was deeply concerned or um, purposeful about parenting. Uh, That was going to be a key instrument in the spread of his glory in creation. Uh, Then we saw in Genesis 3, as God pronounces a curse on the serpent uh, and on the man and the woman and all the earth, even in that language, we saw that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so that, that first gospel announcement was tucked away And it came to us in the language of offspring, of another generation, and ultimately a generation far down the line uh, as Christ is born. In Genesis 4, we saw the effects of sin on the family as one son kills another uh, and certainly influences the the dynamics of the parent-child relationship. And so from the very start, uh, creation, the glory of God, salvation, the gospel, sin, and that ongoing battle, the enmity, Genesis 3 calls it, the the conflict. Uh, All of those doctrines are unfolding, and they're in the context of the home, parenting. So that, that, that is one example of how God reveals anything about parenting to us. Of course, Old and New Testaments are full of other examples and such, so We want to consider uh, and get through any of yours, and then I'll be happy to throw in some of mine if you don't already get them, which you often do. Uh, So let's dive right in with what passages did you find uh, that answer this question? How does the Bible reveal the concept of parenting to us? What do you have? Who starts us off? What do you think? Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, We've probably all heard that one along the way, and there's a lot of discussion about interpretation. Uh, Ultimately, it starts with what is a proverb. It is a general truth. that is kind of an umbrella. There, there may be nuanced paths to walk uh, as you apply that wisdom to life, uh, but there it is in, in the Proverbs. And, and we could say you might have other Proverbs, but 
if no one else does, just know there is a lot in Proverbs that helps you with parenting. Um, most helpful in my mind, uh, one of the most helpful things in my mind, would be the bluntness of parenting, um, where there's not a lot of sitting down and reasoning with one who doesn't have reasoning skills developed. It's just, listen, my son, uh, hear what I say. In other words, do this. Uh, obviously, as your child grows, you begin to expand the conversation. Um, but but let, them, let yourself be helped by the wisdom of Proverbs where it's, it's short and sweet. It just gets to the point. Uh, and that'll save you a, a lot of time and debating. Roy? So in Genesis 4 there, it's the doctrine of sin being manifest. The reality was they ate of the fruit and right away things are crumbling. Uh, They're running from God, literally to hide from him. Um, So that's a problem. Uh, That's not how God created it to be. Um, But understanding the doctrine of sin, uh, the original sin uh, of Adam and Eve that becomes the ruin of all humanity. Death and sin are passed to all because of that first sin of Adam and Eve. Read Romans 5 to understand that they stood in our place. Uh, They represented us so that when they sinned, you sinned. Uh, If you had been there, you would have done the same thing. Uh, They are representative. And that sounds like bad news. Like, well, no, let me have a chance. I would have done better. Well, Sorry, Adam and Eve were your representatives, uh, and they were perfect. They didn't have a sin nature like you did, uh, so they're worthy of being representatives. And though they failed, God says the remedy would be another representative who would not fail. So the second Adam, as we sing in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that second Adam would come, and he would not fail where the first Adam did. He would stand as our representative for law-keeping and righteousness. If you can understand that sin uh, and how it's passed to all, um, there will be a burden lifted theologically and hopefully practically in your parenting because now you realize that there is absolutely nothing that you can do of your own power to change the heart of your child. You can't miraculously give spiritual life to someone who is dead. All you can do is keep steering them to the word, to, as Ephesians would say, uh, the admonition of the Lord. We'll look at that verse. Uh, You just keep giving them God's truth, believing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You just show them God. That's all you're asked to do. Now, Whenever we say something like that's all you do as a parent, we realize that by the very design of parenting and children in the home, there is a, there's that unique affinity, that love for your children. And so obviously you feel like there is much more going on there, but really there's, there's just a very personal uh, investment. There's a very personal concern. There's a love. You long for that person to 
believe the gospel and be changed. So um, we know there's all kinds of love built into that, but just know you have to answer the question, what can I do? What am I capable of as a human being to change another human being? Um, and then you realize with the doctrine of original sin, you, you're kind of, you're helpless. Uh, all you have is the power of the gospel flowing through you, um, which is incredibly good news. Uh, so we don't have to feel bad. It, it literally is, wait a minute, let me rethink this. It, I, I can't change the heart of this little one. Uh, all I can do is keep giving them the truth and just bombard them with that. So to Roy's point, that the understanding that original sin and what's going on, who that person is uh, that has been birthed into your family or adopted into your family, um, who is that person? What are they theologically? What do they need? And then go after that wholeheartedly. All right, what else? What other verses? We've got the wisdom of Proverbs. We've got Genesis. Let's start in the back there. Rihanna. Titus 2, and specific, do you have a phrase or a verse there? All right, so a very generational text, uh, which wouldn't be out of bounds to say, you're raising part of the next generation right in your home. So communicating specifically uh, the role that God has equipped them for. I think that's unique in Titus because when you have older women teaching younger women, and it even specifies there uh, some certain things in the home. How do you deal with this? thing called a male species that you've married, right? And how do you deal with these children? And okay, well, that's something that the world isn't like holding up as incredibly valuable anymore. And so uh, as parents, I think we need to be careful about really communicating uh, how God there in Genesis 1 created mankind in his image, and he did that in a twofold path. He, he wanted to show his image through maleness and through femaleness. Uh, and both of them have their unique reflecting abilities of the image of God. So let's be communicating that. All right. Other hands. John? Yeah, children can become a real burden. Um, When you come to Psalm 127, you realize it's a gift, a heritage of the Lord. Um, Years ago in in studying through, that was back at a church plant in Liberty. I I don't even remember what I was teaching, but doing some of the math, you realize there's there's a billion-dollar industry to prevent you from having children. Um, And then there's a billion-dollar industry to, to deal with a pregnancy should the first billion dollar industry fail you. So if, if 
not having children, you know, happens, <laughs> so or you have a, a child conceived, there's this billion-dollar abortion industry, and then if you're still hassled by children, there's a billion-dollar, you know, daycare industry, and basically there's all this money spent to make sure you're not slowed down in any way by this thought of what the Bible calls a heritage, uh, an inheritance, a gifting. And so um, definitely to come to Scripture and realize, wait a minute, Genesis 1, the first real instruction of God is a blessing that children would be of value, a treasure, uh, Psalm 127, add that to our list. It, it's a good thing. Um, and, and just to speak personally, uh, in a lot of the people getting married uh, that I knew, uh, and we grew up in good conservative churches, and there was a prevailing mindset uh, where almost everyone that we knew getting married was instructed in their premarital counseling even to go on birth control for a couple of years so that you wouldn't have children and mess up getting to know your spouse. Well, you know, you can, I guess, understand something of the idea, but maybe. Uh, in my mind, even back then, I thought, well, if you don't know this person, why are you marrying them? Like, or, or to borrow the biblical knowledge for knowing your spouse, and it was very much the process of having children. So, like, it just didn't seem like it fit to say, whatever you do, do not have children in the first couple years. Um, I'm not saying that individual couples can't wrestle through what God wants them to do. I just don't think it's a prevailing counsel or wisdom to say, don't have children right away because it will mess up your marriage. Uh, that's not what God says about children in Psalm 127. So, just be careful of the rudimentary thinking of the world that creeps into the church regarding even the hassle, the cost, the imposition of children. Uh, that's the world's way of thinking. All right, good. What else? There were a lot of hands, so uh, we'll jump in here. Paul? Deuteronomy 6. Um, let's just turn there because it, it is one of those foundational Old Testament passages. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There's the weight of it for you. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. What he commands, you hear and do and then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. God has a plan for little minds to know who he is. And it's not necessarily angelic messengers or, you know, prophets or the gift of the pastor teacher even. It's first and foremost, you teach them diligently. Um, you're, you get a highlight on Sunday in a Sunday school class or in a sermon but ultimately, God says, you got to fill in all the other gaps. you got to teach them all the other stories. you got to show them all the truth. Uh, that's your job. You teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And the text continues, and even down to the end of that chapter. Verse 20, when your son asks you in a time to come, 
What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? That, that conversation will start young. Why do I have to do that? Why the rules? Why this? Why do we do that? And then as they get older, your teens are going to want to know reasons why. They're looking to justify. They're looking to think. When they ask, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It's an old gospel song. He brought us out to bring us in uh, from this text. We're supposed to give that as the answer for why we keep these rules of Christianity. You see, the son is asking, why do we keep all these statutes and commands and rules? In our day and age, we might phrase the question, it seems so legalistic to do all that stuff. Well, the parent's answer was, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. We were slaves in Egypt. You want to know rules? You want to know burdens? We were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord, with these incredible, wondrous signs and wonders, great and grievous, brought us out and gave us this land. So the parental answer is, no, you don't understand a burden. God's commands, 1 John says, are not burdensome. They're not grievous to us. We, we, we do what God wants willingly because he's rescued us. He saved us from our slavery. So take Deuteronomy 6, the familiar part, Teach them to your children, whether you're walking, going through life day, throughout the day, doing chores in the house, working in the yard. Sure, teach the wisdom of God's word uh, and do it when you sit down right there in the house and very intentionally communicate God's word. But remember why we're communicating, here's what God said, and this is the way to walk, as Proverbs says. It's because God has rescued us. We're trying to communicate to our children not just all the statutes and commands, but the reason for why we would keep them. The New Testament language is a little different. Paul says, I beseech you, brothers. I I plead with you based on God's mercy that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, that's the same as Deuteronomy 6. Because he rescued us from slavery, we'll gladly live for him. But does your Christianity and your faith communicate that? Or is it the, oh, brother, we have to do this. We have to do that. Our lives and our words need to be communicating, no, we gladly do this. So go to Deuteronomy 6. That's a great text. Uh, It's one of the ways God communicates the concept of parenting. In this case, with specific instructions for how you live and how you communicate your passion to your kids. All right, what else? Uh, 
Aaron, yeah, I saw your hand. So how does the Bible reveal the concept of parenting? Aaron's saying, well, when you look at how God related to the people of Israel, we we see this parenting relationship. Now, coming out of Egypt, Exodus 19, we're very familiar with God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. There was this covenant being established. So then you have Exodus 20, the commands. And then right after that, you have sacrifice and blood sprinkled on the commandments of stone and on the people as the sign of the the blood was sealing this covenant. Um, Interestingly, in Exodus 4, and so I'll I'll add a verse to Aaron's thought here. Um, In Exodus 4, God sends Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And God introduces this concept of not just being their God and they would be his people, but now he's calling Israel his firstborn son. Now, that'll set the table for the coming Messiah because here's God's son and God's given his instruction. He's revealed his will and they should keep it perfectly. They should reveal the father's character. And yet we look at Israel and we're like, "Mm, they didn't do that well. They did not keep do the father's will. They did not reveal the father's character perfectly. Um, They were a fail. And so we'll look for a greater son to keep the father's will, uh, to show us the father in a a better way than this son did. Uh, And when Christ comes, he'll satisfy this longing uh, that Israel creates. But notice that God calls Israel my son. And so... God is content to be thought of in this concept of the father. And that reveals something of parenting. Because uh, Exodus 4 is before Deuteronomy 6. And so that, that's a fledgling thought of parenting. Wait a minute. God, God parents us. He's calling Israel his son. So one of the ways God reveals parenting to you is simply by revealing himself to you. The best parenting book you would have might look like a big fat systematic theology that just shows you how the Bible reveals the character of God. And now you stand in the place of God over that little flock, that little congregation, and you're supposed to demonstrate God's character. You're supposed to demonstrate consistency in justice You're supposed to demonstrate discipline. You're supposed to demonstrate love and mercy. You're supposed to demonstrate law and firmness. All that, it's all on you. Uh, Because God is parenting his people. Uh, He asks us to parent our people in the way that he would. Uh, So Exodus 4, Israel, my son. Uh, Aaron raised a great point that we learn something about parenting by seeing how God reveals himself as a father. And other verses may do that as well that you have. All right, what else?
Shelly. Yeah, so Proverbs 1, calling us to this sacrificial investment in our children, longing for them to succeed in God's eyes, to to win the crown, um, but that would mean to live a righteous life, uh, and knowing that that takes an incredible amount of work. Um, So again, the the wisdom of Proverbs adding to our parenting. Uh, Clark, you got something? Yeah, you know, because the King James, probably the new King James, uses that word nurture and admonition. Um, Most of the others, NASB, ESV, probably um, have discipline and instruction. Now, the words are similar because often the word nurture, the first word discipline, is defined as instruction, and yet that's our second word. So we have to kind of just think of these words, and the first one is really the word for training or correction, which is the word we would often use for discipline. Um, But it just reminds us, wait a minute, I'm to bring up my children in the discipline, which is a a very, let's think of it as strict and structured. Because if you stray from it, the other part of this word discipline is Hebrews 12, that chastening of the Lord to steer us back to the right path. So, it's interesting, though, that in the old, older English translations, we would think of the word nurture as being all sweet and cuddly, right? You're, you're kind of real soft and gentle, but it's, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's, no, you bring them up in, in, in a preciseness that says righteousness is the only way that works. You stray from that, and it's not good. Go back to the Proverbs and see all the analogies and illustrations uh, it, it's almost like first and foremost, parent, you'd better learn to be the disciplinarian, the one who knows exactly what the righteous path is, and you're communicating that. In most cases, and especially speaking in, in the church, your heart and love and compassion will be there. That will be a reflection of God as well. But in this instruction to parents in Ephesians 6, it starts with discipline, training, correction, chastening, or chastisement. That's the first word. Bring them up this way. There's a principle in Paul Tripp's book on parenting that we we should all study again soon. Uh, And his principle is give your children law. Just don't ask the law to do for them what only grace can do. But you will have very little hope of communicating God's grace in the gospel if your children know nothing of law, of boundaries, of authority, of structure. So bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Show them this is what God has said. And he's promised an eternal consequence if you do not do it God's way. Now, for a one-year-old, that simply means, yeah, you might thump their hand a little when they start throwing food on the floor and you say no and they look at you and throw more food on the floor. You might have to show them law. 
There is a boundary. You can't cross boundaries without consequence. And as soon as you're teaching them that at a young age, it, it's very, very much now uh, you're, you're ready to be able to wade into those waters of demonstrating what mercy looks like. So don't think you're, you're abandoning grace and mercy by raising them in the discipline of the Lord. The second word is instruction or the admonishment uh, of the Lord. Uh, the word is the word that used to describe uh, J. Adams' counseling, which was neuthetic counseling. Um, neuthetic counseling is probably now kind of resting in the, what are the letters? A, A something, A, C, B, C, or there's a counseling organization there that really is just the descendant of J. Adams, a, a Reformed theologian who spent a lot of time in counseling, applying the Bible to our struggles in life. Well, that word neuthetic is from two Greek words, new, which is the mind, and tithemi, to, to put or to place. So you could pack a suitcase and place clothes in it, and that's the word to put or to place. But he's saying put something into the mind. That's the word admonish or exhort in the scriptures or even to warn. You're constantly putting into the mind of your kids something about the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Put it in their head. Uh, I think that was a Mr. Pibb advertisement. This little head would open and they'd pour it right in there, you know. Uh, Put it in your head. Well, that's Neuthetic counseling, that's admonishment biblically. Put truth in the head of your kid. You you can't change them, remember. You can't make them trust Jesus. You can't make them repent of sin. But you can put it in their head. All 18 years while they're in your home or whatever it is, you can show them exactly what God says. You can show them all of God's holiness and all of his demands all of the law, and you can show them all the grace and glory that comes especially through Christ and and his incarnation. You can show it all to them, put it all in their head. And then you have to step back and trust that God will take all of that and do what pleases him. Um, But Ephesians 6, 4, very familiar text, the nurture and admonition of the Lord or the discipline and instruction of the Lord Uh, two weighty words that guide our parenting. We have to make sure we're we're showing them the right path and the consequences of straying from it. And then you bombard them. You put God's truth in their head. Um, All right, what else? Uh, Joshua and then... Yeah, so 2 Corinthians, this some provision that Joshua has reminded us of. And there again, a, a reflection of what God does for us. So again, the study of God will be a fantastic study of parenting. Um, in this case, God has put you in the place of both mental capacity, physical capacity, you know, societal understanding to be able to be someone who provides both for them so they have what they need and provides them with those developments in those same areas. Um, 
And this, this is what you see uh, our, our culture drifting on a little bit. You know, this is why we have that stereotype of a 30-year-old single man living in his parents' basement playing video games, all right? If that person exists, and I think he does, um, it would be that failure to not to provide for them, the parents still doing that, but they failed to transition into preparing them to be that, okay? So start now, because remember the number of weeks are getting by, your kid hits the fourth grade, and they're halfway done with any time spent with you as far as full-time parenting. So I would say about that time, they better be learning some responsibility and what it is to grow into the kind of person who is a provider and thus is a uh, reflector of God's image. Uh, all right, uh, Brooks. Yeah, this idea of imitation is, is, a, is a big study. Um, how does God communicate the concept of parenting? He does so by his commands to imitate, whether it's through Paul saying, imitate me as I follow Christ, or, and that was in 1 Corinthians, you said, uh, or in Ephesians 5, where it's the same thing, be imitators of God, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Um, as dear children, he adds. So in other words, Paul, I don't know if he had children or not, I haven't quite studied that one out, um, Paul was around enough kids to know that a little one-year-old or going on two-year-old, you know, could sit there at the kitchen table in the high chair and mom or dad could say, can you say asparagus? <laughs> what parent would make their kid try to say that, right? Um, and, and, the, and the child enjoys that and, and they'll try to say that. Or, you know, you do something silly, and they do something silly, and they learn words, they learn actions, they learn a lot simply by imitation. And, you know, watch some of the little ones that are, you know, all the little preteens will be like watching your little toddlers for you after church, and the, the little ones want to do what the bigger ones do. Um, that imitation is natural, so if God is going to borrow on that real-life parenting encounter of your children imitating, and he's going to use that to help you and I know how to obey him, then God's revealing something about parenting in these commands of imitation. Um, and so that, that's a great study right there um, because it, it saddles you as the parent with an incredible responsibility of waking up every morning dependent on God to live right, because you're communicating something. It's Deuteronomy 6. It's that walking in the way, and you might not even know you were teaching, and yet you're, you're doing that. And so, you know, think about the way you talk about, you know, the policeman, you know, when you see him with their speed trap set up, and the way you, you might kind of slander or demean them, and you don't realize you're teaching. You know, so the president fell off his bicycle, right? But do we really need to keep making a spectacle of it and make him, you know, talk about him like he's this idiot and this buffoon and what kind? What do you think your children are learning? 
Because eventually they're going to realize, oh, that's the authority of the nation. And they're going to think, well, if it's okay to mock and belittle authority, then why do my parents need any more respect if they do things that are foolish, you know? So we just have to realize in every area of life, we're setting an example for our children to imitate us. We've got to be careful. Uh, God's revealing something about parenting, and it's not so much, here, go home and do this. It's, no, be this. Be someone who could say, you follow me as I follow Christ. If you follow me, you'll probably get it pretty much right because I'm following Christ. That, that's, a, that's a great weight, but a great privilege as well. All right, what else? Seems like, yes, Patty? So, um, help me here, is it Lois and Eunice, uh, mother and grandmother of Timothy? And it's interesting that Paul tells Timothy, remember who you've heard these things from. Not because they're anything like they have any power to do anything. He gets to that quickly. No, it's the scriptures that are able to make you wise to salvation. But remember with thanksgiving and and praise to God who those people were that influenced you. Uh, so in that case, a, a mother and a grandmother. Uh, that expands our parenting again to those of you who are grandparents and may not have full-time influence, but it's significant. Uh, there's something about grandparents that can speak and affirm and echo what parents have been saying over and over again over and over again, and somehow God uses it in a great way. So parents of children who are parenting, use your influence. Uh, be the Lois and the Eunice that show those scriptures, and in them is the power to change. All right, what else? Oh, Yes. Yeah, I, we've all been there in the parenting, if, well, I guess if you've parented, and you know how easy it is to grow weary of the repetition, the discipline, the intentionality, and to just kind of let it go sometimes, like, oh, I'll deal with it next time, or not deal with it at all. Um, so that, that scripture, what was the reference on that, or did you... Okay, so it is in, back to Psalm 127. Uh, arrows in the hands of the warrior. Uh, that, that, that just sets before us a whole other study. You know, a warrior, you're thinking there's a lot at stake, there's great risk, there's, there's warfare, uh, there's all the preparation, there's the reality of this warrior term, which isn't just fight the good fight. It's like up a notch, it's like special forces, 
you know, Army Rangers. It's like, no, these guys are the elite. Um, and so the question becomes, okay, do you consider yourself an elite parent? Like, are you doing this, like, with the kind of intensity uh, and understanding of the value of this in your parenting? Um, so that's a great, simple little illustrative expression in Psalms, and yet it just opens up our thinking to it. Wait a minute, I, I'm sure I could be doing more. Um, to think of that arrow needing to be so, so finely shaved, not a single you know, bump on it that's going to throw off the aerodynamics. And, and that's why I'm concerned about every time, you know, my kid is mean to one of his siblings. It really matters that you're kind to one another, just as God in Christ is kind to us. That matters. But we kind of get content with, well, our kids are good enough. They look like a straight arrow until you feel that thing and you realize, man, there's a long way to go. I need a lot of help yet. There's a lot of grace needs to happen here. Um, so arrows in the hands of a warrior, that's a good one. All right, what else? I think the Bible reveals the concept of parenting sometimes through examples. If you think of Eli, the priest, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, and the few verses that we hear about these guys, it's just, it's just a bad parenting almost from start to finish. Samuel hears that vision from the Lord as a little boy and you know, answers, Here am I, Lord. Um, and, and the message is, Eli hasn't dealt with his kids. He never has, and God's going to judge them for it, and eventually he does. Uh, and on the day that the sons are killed in God's judgment, Eli hears of it, and being a, apparently an undisciplined man himself of enormous weight, he simply falls off his chair, and his own weight breaks his neck, and he dies. Uh, and it's just kind of like this, from start to finish, it's just a sad story of, that should have been done differently. And, and there it is. The Bible's warning us. Uh, when Proverbs says, listen, my son, that means a parent better be speaking and it means a child better be listening. Both are necessary. Paul, you had something else. Yeah, do we fear maybe that if we apologize, repent, you know, to our children that we're compromising our authority somehow? Uh, I think that's an excuse, at least, for why we might not. But wrestle through this matter of how do I treat my children um, when I have sinned before them or against them? And you recognize that there's that imitation that Brooks talked about in, in a in a humbling way. But we want our kids to learn humility. We want them to learn repentance. Um, so let's show it to them. Sure, and, and, and that teaches us that God is merciful to those in that place. Uh, Isaiah 49, 
The prophet writes, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? What's the answer to that question? It's a resounding yes. Uh, she can. Now, his point is, we would hope that was, isn't the norm, you know, but with 50 to 60 million abortions now totaling in our nation, uh, the answer has to be yes. A woman can definitely forsake her own child. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget, says the Lord. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Uh, even in the language of communicating God's faithfulness, he draws on parenting. And it's, it's almost paradoxical because we're thinking, well, parenting would be the great example of love and You know, I die for my wife and my children. But the reality is, in in a sinful world where self ultimately prevails, um, even human parenting may fail. And this, I raise this point because some of you even would think of a mother or father, stepmother, stepfather, uh, a marriage that fell apart, and and maybe even a, a parent Uh, who completely failed to represent what true parenting should be, Uh, could be a very harsh upbringing, an abusive upbringing even. So in your mind, human parenting has failed. It's not a good example. God says that's what happens with sin. But even if those parents may fail, God in his perfect parenting will never fail. Uh, Malachi also uses parenting when he predicts the ministry of John the Baptist, who would be that sign, that forerunner of the Messiah. When you see John, you'll know Messiah is coming. And he says his ministry is going to look like turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Um, And so he draws on this parenting encounter, our inclinations our responsibilities, our commitments to each other. And he says, John's going to promote that. He's going to demonstrate the grace and the repentance, the love that are needed to make that happen. Uh, John 17, you can read Jesus' prayer, and he uses father and son language throughout. He, He communicates what the relationship should look like, the authority of the father, the will of the father, the obedience and submission of the son which produces the pleasure of the Father and the joy of the Son. If there isn't pleasure in your parenting, and if there isn't joy in your children, we need to get to the root of the problem, which is simply disobedience, rebellion, in either the parent or the child. Um, But John 17 is a beautiful picture of what parenting should be. Uh, Parable of the lost son, or we call him the prodigal son, but it's tucked in there with the lost coin and the lost sheep. It's the lost son. And to study the father in that story is a beautiful picture of parenting. Several of our questions we'll have to address, deal with, what do you do with wayward children? Maybe they weren't raised in a Christian home and now the parents are Christians, or maybe they were raised in a Christian home and they're not living for the Lord. Well, it's unique that God addressed that exact scenario in the story of the lost son. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul's ministry is described in his own words, as the, as the care of a nursing mother. So his, his ministry of the word to the church, and we could apply that then to the one another's, to each other. 
should have the tenderness of a nursing mother, but also kind of the firmness of an exhorting father. So he says, I was among you like a mother nursing her child, but I was also like this father exhorting his son. Hey, this is what it means to be a man. Come on, we got to do this right. That's not how you treat your mother or your sister. And it has a bit of firmness to it, but it's both. So Paul even says parenting is so valuable that it even helps us understand what ministry should look like. And of course, Hebrews 12 shows us that true parenting does the hard work of discipline and chastening, but it's the very essence of what a parent is. God says there is no parent-child relationship if this discipline and chastening isn't happening. So you might be a a birth father, but you're not a father who's parenting if you're not chastening and disciplining. Uh, God says that's how sons know their sons. When a father loves them so much that he's going to say, I will not let you do that. I will do everything in my power to steer you back to the right path because you are my son. I care. And we all know the concept of latchkey kids and, and in this day's techno kids that parents don't parent. They just give them the technology. Just go do your thing. And we might use the word neglect or something. The Bible simply says you're, you're not their parent. And if you want to step into that role, it's going to mean you care enough about them to be engaged in steering them to the right. God says, you're not sons, you're illegitimate sons if I don't discipline you. But if you're my kid, I'm going to care enough to discipline. Uh, So in, in, in these ways, in all these verses we've looked at, and many more examples, Old and New Testament, parenting keeps coming through. So it's not just a quick mention in Ephesians 6 or Deuteronomy 6, but it's all the way through. Because after all, the character of God is at stake here. He parents us. And so whatever we know of God in his revelation to us can be transferred into our parenting of the children in our homes. We'll build on this foundation not just these passages, but this weight of Scripture revealing God and therefore revealing how we parent. We'll use that foundation next week to begin answering some questions. Uh, You keep wrestling through questions, throw them in the box, and uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Father, thank you that your word contains for us your precious promises, everything that we need for life and godliness. And I think many here would admit that we need your wisdom in parenting, uh, especially to be godly parents. And so give us faith to to take you at your word. Uh, Give us eyes to see how you care and parent, uh, care for and parent us and make us imitators of you so that our children will see the, the right way to live and will follow in our footsteps And those footsteps would then lead them to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.